Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Pharmacy Hot Topics, where we sit down with content matter experts and discuss what is currently top of mind in the world of pharmacy. My name is Zeki Basiliga, and today we'll be chatting with Jawad Saleh, Clinical Manager of Pharmacy Services at the Hospital for Special Surgery in New York, New York. We're going to be talking about postoperative nausea and vomiting and its effects and consequences on patients' care. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, I'm glad to be here. So, Jawad, how common is postoperative nausea and vomiting? Well, PONV is one of the most common postoperative complications. To be honest, if you look at some of the data out there, it occurs in about 80% of high-risk patients, and we're going to discuss what the high-risk means later on in this session. And on it, despite receiving prophylaxis, uh, approximately 30% of patients undergoing surgery still experience PONV. So as you can see, it is a struggle. There is a barrier and trying to kind of fix this unmet need can help institutions greatly. Can you talk to me a little bit about how post-operative nausea and vomiting affects institutions financially? Yeah, well, PONV can lead to extended inpatient hospital stay approximately costing the institution over $2,000. Uh, that's when assessing the Kaiser data that I, we were looking into. The Habib study in 2006 suggests that PONV can increase PACU length of stay by approximately 25 minutes, and the incremental financial hit can be $138 for emesis and $85 for nausea per event. The other thing to look into is the hospital discomfort, which can lead to financial loss, which we'll get into when we look at patient satisfaction, volume-based to value-based quality matters, not quantity, has been part of the reimbursement process and where we're shifting to, which is value-based purchasing, merit-based incentives, specifically number 430, where rewards, value, and outcomes with payment adjustments, and a lot of anesthesiologists have to fill out these questions with these patients. And there are these CAP scores, not H CAPs, but specifically related to outpatient and ambulatory surgery where there's consumer assessments of healthcare providers and systems and questions 17 and 18. So it's a lot to take in, but I want the listeners to really digest how much this truly affects financially, uh, financially affects your institution. You know, I'm glad you mentioned patient satisfaction. Can you talk to me a little bit about the impact the post-operative nausea and vomiting has on patient satisfaction? Yeah. So patient satisfaction is something as providers, you know, something as pharmacists and being in the healthcare field that we truly care about. And we care about our patients, but there is a dollar sign attached to this. One of the top post-operative concerns, at times even over pain concerns, is PONV. As per the TJ Gann study in the British Journal of Anesthesia in 2004, 70% of patients would rather trade off by having fair pain to have zero vomiting after surgery. In another study by TJ Gann in 2001, where they had an interactive computer questionnaire of 80 patients how much are they willing to pay to avoid vomiting was $100 and nausea was $73. So poor patient satisfaction scores may indirectly lead to institutional financial loss. So it's more important than we think, and specifically when you start to look at HCAP scores and star ratings and things of that nature. So when you're trying to assess a patient for postoperative nausea and vomiting, are there certain risk factors we should look for? 
So risk factors are really important here, especially in your institution and guiding your electronic or your EMR or whatever you're using, whether it's Epic, to alert you to give specific medications based on risk factors is important. And risk factors are usually split into three categories. So there's the patient risk factors. If you're female, prior history of PONV or motion sickness, age under 50 or delayed gastric emptying. And if you look at that, if you're just a female who's under 50, who's had motion sickness, you're already at number three, which is high risk. There's anesthesia types, general is higher risk, opioids or volatile anesthetic agents obviously can increase PONV. And then the third category, surgical types, if you have longer surgeries or cholestectomies, which are higher risk. So those three categories are where you can categorize your PONV risk factors. Can you tell me a little bit about the Axel Simplified Risk Score? So since we've just went out over the risk factors and there were a bunch, the AFO risk score is a simplified risk score that was proven to be extremely effective. There's four main predictors of risk, female, history of POMV or motion sickness, non-smoker, post-operative opioid use. So now if you look at this, we were talking about risk scores before, I mean, risk factors, but this risk score utilizing this shows you that if you're a female and you're a non-smoker, you're going to get opioids after surgery. For the most part, you're already at high risk, which, which sucks, but this just puts things in perspective of how serious this is. Each risk factor that you have increases the incidence of PONV by 20%. So if you have three risk factors, you're a female, you're not a smoker, and you're going to get opioids after surgery, you're already at 60% of getting PONV. So as a pharmacist who would probably help recommend therapies for postoperative nausea and vomiting, what are the different medication classes that exist? So there are a bunch. There are the anticholinergics, which is the you know scopolamine patches, diphenhydramine. You have your 5-HT3 antagonists. The most common one, obviously, is Zofran on Dancitron. Your corticosteroids, dexamethasone. Dopamine antagonists, metoclopramide, chlorpromazine, procloperazine, droperidol, just to name a few. Your NK1 inhibitors, such as the pripotent and fosapripotent antihistamines, diphenhydramine, promethazine. So there's a bunch of classes, but it's really not that extensive. And I think understanding what the adverse effects or what drug interactions can occur when utilizing each one, and specifically whether you're utilizing it for prophylaxis or rescue is important, understanding when to use each agent. I'm glad you mentioned the difference between prophylaxis and rescue medication. Can you kind of Describe for us the differences between the two and when you would use which. So many agents exist for prophylaxis. We like to give more of a multimodal approach where you're giving different mechanisms of action prior to surgery, depending on how high that risk score is when you're looking at the app over score, whatever scoring system you're using. But failed prophylaxis can be common. And this is what a lot, I think the pearl here is that you can't use the agent with the same mechanism of action for at least six hours. So if you're utilizing four agents for prophylaxis or three agents, uh, Zofran, dexamethasone, a scope patch, Reglan, when you come out of surgery, if it hasn't been six hours and you're nauseous or you're vomiting, you really should not be using one of those agents because those receptors are saturated. So using an agent from a different class for rescue or treatment is where it becomes a huge issue and some of the difficulties we're having for treating these patients. Refractory issue is a big problem. Promethazine is making somewhat of a comeback, gaining some momentum. 
Honestly, understanding what dose to use, every institution uses a different dose to minimize extravasation or minimize some of its you know, adverse events or drug interactions is crucial. Some are still utilizing PO versus VIV. And again, it's, it'd be more of an infusion and not a push, right? So, and how long that infusion is and what dose you're using in your institution is important. You sh- if you're going to use it, you should have a policy or protocol or guideline in place for using promethazine. Uh, there are newer agents like emisulpride that were released that were, you know, utilizing it with a different mechanism of action. And some non-FDA approved indications that I've been seeing and what I, we've been utilizing in our institution are the NK1 inhibitors for rescue, such as a Pripotent, Fosipripotent, Emend is a, the brand for some of that, some of those agents, and it, which, which deemed somewhat successful trying to publish something now regarding that, a retrospective cohort study so database. So, I mean, prophylaxis is difficult. I think it's not as much of an issue as rescue because we are we know what to use for prophylaxis. We're giving it. I think rescue becomes an issue, especially when you're refractory to agents. Well, Jawad, thank you so much for joining us today to discuss post-operative nausea and vomiting. If you haven't before, I encourage you all to check out ACHP's online resources. You can find member-exclusive offerings such as the Preceptor Toolkit, the Research Resource Center, Clinical Pharmacy Resources, and more. Thanks again for tuning in for this episode of Hot Topics in Pharmacy, and we hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Be sure to subscribe to ACHP's podcast on your favorite podcast provider. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.